Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are going to look at Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. Hear then the word of the Lord. King Herod heard of this. Sorry, let me set it just a little bit. We, last week we learned that Jesus was rejected in his hometown. He sent out the twelve. They're going around in different villages. And they're preaching the gospel, casting out demons. Okay, And so the word is getting out everywhere. And so we pick up the story here. Verse 14. King Herod heard of this because Jesus' name had become well known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And that's why supernatural powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him, and wanted to kill him. But she could not, because Herod was in awe of John and was protecting him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he would be very disturbed, yet would hear him gladly. Verse 21. Now, an opportune time came on his birthday. When Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. So he swore oaths to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Verse 24. Then she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? John the Baptist's head. She said, immediately, she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter right now. Verse 26, though the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guests, he did not want to refuse her. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you again for speaking to us. To read your word is an act of worship all by itself. Father, we thank you that you have spoken, and we pray now that as we meditate on your word that you would continue to speak. So guard the words of my mouth, and the meditation of all our hearts may be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Guard us from distraction and from the evil one who would like to pluck out the word this morning, or who would like to distract us, or who would like to um, help us focus on other people and think of how this message might be good for others, but not for us. God, help us to not be like Herod, who loved to hear the word, but wouldn't ever believe it. Grant us faith this morning, by your grace, we pray. We need your help. 
Lord Jesus, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we pray that you would abide in us and your words would abide in us and that we would abide in you this morning. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we learned that Jesus went to his hometown and did his own hometown and family receive him or reject him? They rejected him. So we learned that even those who are closest to him reject him. In Mark chapter 6, the next verses, verses 7 to 13, we see that Jesus goes around to different villages preaching the gospel. And then he sends his 12 disciples out in pairs preaching the gospel and casting out demons and anointing people with oil for the sick. And the word was spreading everywhere. And yet, Jesus said, when people reject you, shake the dust off of your feet. In other words, when you go out, you're going to be what? Rejected by some. So Jesus was rejected in his hometown. His disciples would go out and they would be rejected at times as they went from village to village. And now we get to this passage here, which ties both of these passages of Jesus being misunderstood and rejected and his messengers being misunderstood and rejected in this in in this paragraph or this section right before us this morning. So if you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I want to give another word to you this morning. Again, we're glad you're here, and I see some have come a little bit later. So if you're not a Christian, thank you for coming here this morning. I want you to think about something with us this morning. I want you, as a non-Christian or someone who's not sure you're a Christian, if you haven't repented from your sins and trusted in Jesus, I want you to understand what Christians think about when they get received or rejected by non-Christians. So here you get a kind of inside talk among Christians as they think about what it, what, how we understand being rejected by the world. And that's good for you to understand as a, as a not yet Christian or a non-Christian because there are a lot of Christians in our country. And so it, it's good for you to, to understand where we're coming from and what the Bible teaches us as to how to think. But then for Christians, and here's the main point of this passage, I think, I think we as disciples need to expect pain. We need to expect suffering. We need to be ready for it. Actually, we need to be already understanding that it's upon us. And it's always been the case ever since Jesus ascended to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 1980, what is it, three, 1983 years ago or whatever that was, 33 AD. So we need to expect pain. Specifically, we need to expect the pain of being misunderstood and the pain of being mistreated. Now, some of us already know what that's like, given different ethnic backgrounds. Some of us don't know what that's like. And yet, all Christians need to expect to be misunderstood and need to expect to be mistreated. And we need to share in this pain. So, and I'm getting the idea of share in this pain. That's kind of, that's going to be my, my running slogan for, for right now, sharing in the pain. Because there's a verse in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, that says, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. Share in suffering. That's a command. Paul commanded Timothy to share in suffering. It's not an option. It's a command. It's an obligation to share in suffering for the gospel. And so what we want to talk about this morning is share in the pain of being misunderstood. And then share in the pain of being mistreated. That's the second point. That's going to be our longer point, our longest point. And then uh, thirdly, we'll share in the power to suffer. Okay? 
But the second point is going to be the bulk. But let's share in the pain of being misunderstood, share in the pain of being mistreated, and let's share in the power to do it. So let's look at the first one, share in the pain of being misunderstood. Go back to verses 14 to 16 here. I read them already. You see that there's a bunch of theories about who Jesus is. Word has gone out around town. With disciples doing miracles and casting out demons and healing the sick and preaching the gospel, with Jesus going around preaching the gospel, word is getting around the region about Jesus. He's getting more and more popular. He's going viral, so to speak, right? His hits and his clicks and his Twitter, is be, his Twitter accounts being retweeted and his word is going out. He's on the news. Everyone knows about this Jesus, including Herod. And so naturally, when someone gets that popular, everyone has an opinion, right? Everyone has a viewpoint. Everyone has a perspective. And so who is this Jesus? And so we have a few theories here. In verse 14, or verse, uh, yeah, verse 14, it says, Some said he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And we'll think about that in a second, but look at verse 15. But others said he is who? Elijah. Now, why would they expect Elijah? Elijah never died physically in the Old Testament. He was taken up beside a fiery chariot, chariot straight to heaven. Elijah never died. And then at the very end, the very last verse of the Old Testament, before God goes silent for 400 years, there's a prophecy in Malachi 4, 5, where God says, I'm sending you my messenger, Elijah, before the day of the Lord. So everyone was expecting who to come. Elijah. He never died. He went up to heaven. The last prophecy before God goes silent, Elijah's coming before the day of the Lord. So here's Jesus going around doing these miracles. I know who he is. He's Elijah. Some thought, well, that's not the right answer, but that was one view. The other view in verse 15 is he's a prophet like one of the prophets. Maybe Jeremiah, it says in other other instances of serving the, the viewpoints of the day. Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet would come just like him to mediate a covenant. And so there was going to be a prophet to come on the same level of Moses in the future. Maybe Jesus is that prophet. So that was another popular view. Maybe Jesus is Moses or someone like Moses. Others thought, not in this text, but others thought that Jesus was a demon-possessed bastard. He was possessed by a demon, by Beelzebul, and a bastard in the sense that nobody knew his father, right? Because everyone knew that Joseph wasn't his biological dad. So he's a father. He's a father. He's fatherless. And so one popular view at the time was that's who Jesus was. His enemies who hated Jesus and didn't like his teaching, that's what they were spreading. That that was their view of who Jesus was. Well, before we get to Herod's view, which is going to segue to the next point, what about today? Do people have different views of Jesus today? If you Google or put in a search engine, Jesus, and then you press enter, how many pages are going to come up? You know, in 1.5 seconds, you get like, you know, 6 million or maybe you know, 100 million pages on who Jesus is. So maybe you just need to read all 100 million pages, then you'll figure it out, right? That's one way of doing it, which I don't recommend. Um, that, so what, what do people say about Jesus today? Islam says that Jesus, Jesus is a prophet, but not the greatest prophet even. Muhammad, the prophet after him, is the greatest prophet who reveals their view of who God is, Allah. What does Hinduism say? Hinduism says that either Jesus was just a man or Jesus was a man who actually was God, but he's one God among thousands of gods. Maybe that's who Jesus is. One among many thousands of gods. 
Buddhism, if they believed he existed at all, some don't, some do, they say he's someone who achieved enlightenment. And so if you become a good Buddhist and you, you meditate enough and you achieve enlightenment, you'll be just like Jesus who also achieved enlightenment. In mainline liberal Christianity, I say that in quotes, Christianity, Jesus is a good example of love. But he wasn't supernaturally God. He didn't do any supernatural miracles. Or maybe he did, but doctrine isn't important anyways. All that matters is loving people. In secular America, secularism, Jesus was not God. Maybe he was a good teacher. He was loving and forgiving. And Jesus is a helpful person in secular states as long as he keeps people being good neighbors. But that's all he is. So some back then thought Jesus was different things. Today it's no different. I mean, maybe we have different views. Nobody's going around saying he's Elijah, right? But people have different views of Jesus today. The, the main view here that we're going to meditate on is the fact that Herod thought Jesus was who? According to verse 16. Who did Herod think Jesus was? John the Baptist, right? He thought Jesus was John the Baptist. But here's the main point of this, or of this first thought of sharing and being misunderstood. Jesus was misunderstood, right? He was misunderstood, and thus he was rejected. He wasn't misunderstood in the sense that it excuses people. You know, John 1, verse 10, says that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Right? His own did not receive him. Let me read it to you, because John 1, verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. It's not that they're, they have an excuse. Well, I didn't know who he was. No, you should have known who he was, and yet you rejected him, and you're accountable for rejecting him. So Jesus is misunderstood, but that doesn't excuse any of us sitting here from misunderstanding him. If we misunderstand Jesus and misidentify Jesus, our guilt and our mistake is on our head. We have to understand who Jesus is. They misunderstood Jesus in John chapter 1 and in John chapter 3. It says, because men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. In other words, it's not that they're intellectually rejecting Jesus primarily. It's that they love their sin. And if Jesus is calling them to repentance from that sin and freedom from that sin, they don't want that. They want the forgiveness. They don't want the freedom from sin. And so Jesus is misunderstood. Okay, so that's the first thing is, we need to share in being misunderstood because Jesus was misunderstood. If Jesus was misunderstood, don't expect everyone to understand your Christianity. They won't. Because your Christianity is defined by who? Jesus. And if they misunderstand him, they're going to misunderstand us. Okay, so that's the first point. Secondly, share in the pain of being mistreated. And this is the main the main section of the story. So we're going to jump in here to the story in verses 17 to 29. I read it for you. Uh, for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize the story for you here and you can follow along. I might refer to a verse or two as I tell you the story. Okay, so what, what's the story here? So, so Herod, and this is Herod Antipas, by the way. There's, about, there's at least three Herods in the New Testament. And whenever you read it, you might think it's the same guy who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. No, this is Herod's son, Herod. And all of his sons are called Herod. Herod something. Okay, And so this is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. So Herod Antipas is here. He thinks Jesus is John the Baptist. Now, Herod feels guilty. And you know when you, when you feel guilty, 
You start, you, you feel paranoid that everyone, that somebody knows. I, I can't remember the, the YouTube video that I saw uh, years back where some guy would go on the street. I think it was a YouTube video. And he, and he would just point at people and says, I know you did it. And people would just get, get scared. And, and like they would, you know, they would react because whatever, and he doesn't know anything. He's just going up to any, any person there. You did it. I know you did it. And everyone's like, and you could see like the reaction because everyone carries a sense of guilt. And even if I don't know you, I know that you struggle with or you've had something you feel guilty about this week, right? And if you just say, I know you did it. You know, somebody knows. Because you know that somebody knows. God knows, right? And here's Herod. Where Jesus is going around it, and they're saying, who is this guy? He's the one I beheaded. It has, he felt guilty about his guilt, right? He felt guilty about killing John the Baptist, as we're going we're gonna to recap here. And so he thought Jesus must have been John the Baptist. And so um, we see here in verse 17... Or verse, yeah, in verse 17, Herod, uh, John was in prison. Now, why was John in prison? Because of who? Herodias, Herod's wife. Why? What did John say? John said in verse 18, it is not law. He said to Herod Antipas, it is not lawful. It's not right. It is sinful to what? To have your brother's wife, Philip, to marry her. Or uh, you can't, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so Herod put him in jail because Herodias didn't like John. Herod did a little bit, but he still wanted to put him in jail for at least public relations sake, right? Because Herod's, or John is going around publicly denouncing Herod Antipas. Now, to get a little background of the story here, let me tell you a little, about, a little bit about Herodias. Herodias was Herod the Great. Okay, so Herod the Great is the one during Jesus' birth, who died right after Jesus was born. Herod the Great had a son, Herod Antipas. He had another son, and this son, well, he had several sons. He had 10 wives. He had another son who had a daughter named Herodias. So Herodias is the niece of Herod Antipas. Okay? And, but Herodias is also whose wife, according to verse? Philip's wife, right? And, that, so, and Philip is the what of, John, of Herod? The brother. So in other words, Herod Antipas has another brother, son of Herod the Great, named Philip. And they have another brother who had a daughter named Herodias. So Philip married his niece. Herodias. Okay, so you have incest going on here, just among the family already. And so, Philip is in Rome. This is like soap opera, tabloid stuff, front cover stuff. I feel like I'm just giving gossip from the news, but this is the story, okay? So, so Herodias and Philip are in Rome, and a, some of the other Herods are, are ruling over different parts. It, broke, it was broken up into four parts, but Philip didn't get a, a, get a, a territory. So he's in Rome. He's not able to rule. He married his, his niece, Herodias. Herod Antipas goes and visits them and falls in love with or is seduced by Herodias. Now, Herod Antipas is also married. He's married to the daughter of King Aretas, who's a king in some region of Arabia. And you know you make political alliances, how you make treaties, you give your daughter in marriage, and that's, that's a political alliance over here. So they plot together, Herodias and Herod Antipas plot together to, for Herodias to leave Philip, and for Herod, Antipas, to leave Aretas' daughter, and for them to get two divorces and marry each other. So that's what they do. When they do that, his wife, Herod Antipas' wife's dad, his father-in-law, King Aretas, sends an army to battle Herod. And so their armies go to battle. And Aretas' army wins with great bloodshed, until Rome comes in and puts that, puts, that, puts that whole thing to rest so that Herod can keep his Roman territory. 
Okay, so just so you know, straight off the bat, in this divorce, adultery situation, it's cost great lives, right? Because you had a battle. You have soldiers dying for the sexual immorality and adultery and lust that's going on in this two-divorce, illegitimate, sinful marriage. Okay? So that's first of all. And that's all because Herodias seduced Herod, and Herod Antipas was weak enough to go in to that seduction. Now, later on, let me just give you the, the end of the story of their lives. After this story, Herod Antipas, um, Herodias's brother, also named Herod, in Acts chapter 12, sorry, that's just what it is. In Acts 12, he's the one who, who gets struck down by God and there's worms that come out. You, do you know that story? And, and I think it's Acts chapter 12. Anyways, that's Herodias's brother. He takes the, a western part of the region when he comes to power. Well, Herodias wants that region. She wants Herod Antipas to expand because she wants to be a bigger queen and have more territory. She's very power hungry, you can tell, right? With Herod the Great, because Philip didn't have any territory. So she gets, I mean, not Herod the Great, she gets Herod Antipas. And now her brother's getting territory. He shouldn't get that territory. We should get that territory. So she keeps urging her husband, Herod Antipas, to go to the Caesar in Rome to go get that territory. Herod Antipas doesn't want to do it. He doesn't care. But his wife is so persistent and so persuasive as you can see in the pattern of her life, that she convinces her husband to go to Rome to convince the Caesar to give them that territory. Well, as Herod Antipas is on his way to Rome, guess who's already there? Herod Agrippa. And he says, because he knows his sister, and he knows how conniving she could be, he says to the Caesar, Herod Antipas is not worthy of being a leader. He's bad for your, for your Roman empire. You need to get rid of him. So when Herod Antipas comes to get to secure that land, the Caesar says, you're going to be exiled. I don't trust you. And so, so Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias, the adulteress, are exiled to die in exile and they lose their power. All because of Herodias. It was a bad day when Herod met Herodias, right? I mean, lots of people dying in a battle. Now, you know, they actually end up in exile because of this power-hungry woman, and, and, then, and then you have this situation here, this story here, where he even cuts off John the Baptist's head because of Herodias. So you could, you could get a picture of how the dynamics of this marriage is working, right? Herodias is very conniving, very vindictive, very power-hungry. Herod Antipas is leading, but he's very easily manipulated by his wife, and, so, and he's very weak-willed himself and passive-aggressive, maybe, as a husband. And so that's the background here. And so here's John, and what is John saying? It is a sin for you, Herod, to marry Herodias. Now now that you know a little bit about Herodias, you think Herodias is cool with that? No, she's not cool with that, right? You're not getting away with that. You're going to jail. And so Herod is now in jail. And so Herod has a birthday bash, right? He has a birthday party there. And in this birthday party, oh, before we get to the birthday party, Herod likes to call John up from his chambers every so often from his prison cell to preach. Because I like what John says. I'm kind of disturbed by it because it's kind of convicting me of my sin. But I know this is a holy guy, so I don't want to kill him. I got to protect him because my wife is, you know, my wife is kind of, she's kind of mad at this guy. So I got to protect him. Well, Herod has a birthday bash. It's a men's only party, right? All his nobles and military men. And so they have this big birthday bash, drinking, all kinds of sinful things going on there. And then Herodias's daughter, Herod Antipas's now stepdaughter, goes in and dances for the men. We don't have to detail what that would look like. We just, we just know from here. It dances very immodestly, very um, lustfully and lust-inducing. And so the men were pleased with it. 
And King Herod Antipas was pleased with it. So what does he say? He says to her, what what do you want? Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Up to half of my kingdom. Now, he's not even a king, really. He's under the, the Caesar of Rome, right? He's not really a king. He's actually called a tetrarch everywhere else except for here with Mark. A tetrarch is just like a governor, so to speak. But here is, you know, it's just really, it's his birthday. He's walking around with his chest puffed out. And he's just like, what do you want from my kingdom? Anything you want, because I'm the great king. Right? And he's showing off to his, his nobles how, much, how generous and how, how um, big he is. And then she says something that makes him want to swallow, you know, almost swallows his Adam's apple, right? She goes to her mom, says, what do you want me to ask for? Ask for John the Baptist's head. And the daughter does even one better than her mom. I want John the Baptist's head on a platter, right? She, she's just as vicious as her mom. She takes her mom's request and even goes even one step further. I mean, how sick is that? You, you put a meal on a platter, right? And so, you know, I want his head on a platter, this is, this is the, the venom and vindictiveness and evil going on here is just amazing. It's atrocious. And so she asked for that. And look at, what Herod, look at how Herod responds here. Look at verse, let's see, verse 26. What's Herod's response in verse 26? Though the king was deeply distressed, so he's distressed. He doesn't want to do it. He wants to protect John, but... What does it say in verse 26? Because of his oaths and the guest, he did not want to what? Refuse her. And so he complies. So why does he say yes? Because he wanted to say yes and he was happy to say yes? No, that's not why he said yes. Why did he say yes? He was scared of what other people thought. He already puffed out his chest and was showing off how big of a man he was, how big of a king he was. And now that the request is there and it's something he does not want to do, he's stuck because he was showing off. Now, he should have just repented right there and said, I can't do that. That's, that's a dumb request. I can't do that. Anything else you want, lustful daughter of mine, you know, or whatever. But instead of doing that, he, he, he gives in to the peer pressure. Also, he gives in to his own pride of showing himself as generous. And so there's the guilt there. And in deep distress, because of his rash and sinful oath, he complies out of fear of man. You see how passive he is here and how he kind of painted himself into a corner. And now he's going to regret what he did. And so he, he grants the vengeful request, he's tongue-tied, and then they end up cutting off John's head, beheading John, and putting it on a platter and giving it to Herodias' daughter. And then she brings it right to her mom, and they celebrate with glee the head of the greatest man, Jesus said, whoever, the greatest prophet up until Jesus' time, the greatest prophet, the greatest man who ever lived up until that point. And, he's, and there's his head on a platter, and they're celebrating it. That's what goes on here in the story. So you see here that Herodias, we learn from Herodias that she's, she's seductive, conniving, vindictive. She's, she's, very, she's seeking her vain glory. Herod is proud. He's arrogant. He's curious. He likes to hear God's word, but he's hard-hearted toward God's word. Herod is fearful of others' opinions. He's passive. He's weak-willed. He's able to be manipulated by his sinful and self-centered wife. Wow, what a story. This is the only story in Mark that doesn't have to do with Jesus directly. It's the only one. And it's it's a tragic one. But it's not tragic for the reasons we might immediately think. It's more tragic for Herod than it is for John right now in 2015, isn't it? I mean, where they both are right now, this is more tragic for Herod than it is for John. But here's some lessons. Let me point out a few lessons. First lesson here, just from this story, 
is speak boldly. What, what did John do? Did he speak passively and, um, and fearfully, or did he speak boldly? He spoke boldly, right? He knew this wasn't a popular message. He knew how evil Herodias was, and he still says, you cannot have your brother's wife. Notice he doesn't even say it's your wife. It's an illegitimate marriage, and Scripture doesn't even recognize it as marriage. It's an illegitimate marriage. It's not marriage. That's your brother's wife, and it's, it's illegal and unlawful and sinful for you to marry your brother's wife. So, so what do we learn there? Call out sin. Call out sin. Call out sexual immorality. Now, when I say sexual immorality, that's a whole... That's a whole a boatload of different types of sins. That's fornication, that's premarital um, sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality or zoophilia, divorce, po- that's sinful divorce, polygamy, pedophilia, rape, incest, pornography, lust-inducing magazines and commercials and movies and music videos and news reports and little pictures on your website as you're looking at other things. And people dressing immodestly to induce lustful thinking, that's sexual immorality. And we are to speak up against it. We're to speak up against it. Now, I want to say a word here, just because the statistics have held true in my church in Los Angeles, so I'm doubtless it's got to be true here to some degree, that some of you have been victims of sexual immorality and not, not culprits, not criminals, especially if you've been raped or things like that. I just want to say a word to you in that regard. It is not your fault. It's not your fault when you're sinned against. When you are criminalized by a criminal, it's not your fault. And that's not what I'm speaking about here. Okay, I'm not speaking about you being victimized. You're, you're a victim in that regard. And, and there's compassion. And it, you know the shame you feel is not the shame that you produced. It's a shame thrust upon you from a, an evil action from another person. So I'm not speaking about that. I'm talking about the sexual immorality where we're, the ones we're guilty of. Not when you're victimized, but the ones we're guilty of. We need to speak against it because all sin deserves what? All sin deserves what? The wages of sin is death. All sin deserves death. And so we as Christians need to speak boldly, not just about sexually immoral sins, all sins. Racism, not caring for the poor or the foreigner, the stranger, not loving your neighbor, abortion, self-righteousness, religious religiosity, where we look down at others who are not as spiritually mature or further along in their walk with God as we are. And then Jerry Bridges has this book called Respectable Sins. It's the sins that you can commit and still be respectable in a church family. And so I'll just read the list. Sins of the tongue, lying, gossip, slander, boasting, exaggerating, fibbing, ungodliness, anxiety and frustration, discontentment, unthankfulness, ingratitude, ungratefulness, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, irritability, anger, the weeds of anger, judgmentalism, envy, jealousy, worldliness. The wages of sin is death. And we're saying eternal death. And we need to be clear to each other and clear to the world that sin is sin. And sin brings on the wrath and condemnation of God. We need to speak boldly, clearly, firmly, and lovingly. We can even name public figures. Not for the sake of being extravagant, but John is naming names here, right? He's not just saying illegitimate divorce and adultery is wrong. He's actually saying, Herod, what you have done is sinful. It's not wrong as a Christian to be bold in that. We don't want to be political. We want to be biblical and we want to, we want to be great commissional, right? We want to make disciples. 
And so it's not wrong to speak boldly. We must tell them. But we must not only tell them that sin is sin. That's the bad news. But we're not trying to spread bad news. What are we trying to spread? Good news. What do we call the good news? The gospel. We want to tell them about forgiveness of sin. We want to tell them about freedom from sin. We want to tell them about faith in Jesus the Messiah who died for sins and rose from the dead. We have good news for the world. Don't we? But for them to receive the good news, they have to hear the bad news first. Like Alistair Begg says, if you just go straight to the good news and you don't talk about sin, you preach half a gospel. And when you preach half a gospel, you get half a Christian. And because there are no half Christians, they never really become Christian. We need to preach sin, not because we like it. We don't like talking about sin. We like talking about forgiveness from sin. But you have to get the bad news first because to, to receive forgiveness of, from, of sin, you need to trust in Jesus and do what? What's that second word? Repent, right. Turn from your sin. And wasn't that John the Baptist's message? John the Baptist's message was a message of repentance. Remember, there were people when he was baptizing and they were saying, what do we do? And he says to the tax collector, don't take any more taxes than the ones you're supposed to take and give back to those you violated. And then the centurion says, what should we do? Don't oppress people and use your military might to oppress others, but, but serve others. And he just goes on and on about what does repentance look like? So let me say a few things today about re- what repentance can look like today. Let the homosexual give up se- same-sex sexual activity and the feeding of those desires and let him rejoice and pursue righteousness in singleness or in heterosexual righteous marriage. Let the sexually immoral fornicator or adulterer or porn addict give up the relationships and sources that feed those desires and let him as well pursue singleness and purity or heterosexual pure marriage. Let the racist turn from his racism and share life and meals with those from different ethnic backgrounds on their terms with their meals. Let the one ignoring the poor take time to think And I feel guilty here myself as I'm trying to figure out how to do it here in Bellflower. Let those, I'm speaking to myself here, let the one ignoring the poor take time to think about how best to love the poor and direct some tangible time and resources to caring for the needs of people in their neighborhood. Let the gossip and complainers stop complaining and gossiping, but control their tongue and use it to give thanks to God and bless others with their words. This is repentance. Let the lazy procrastinator realize that all his time is given by God to bless others so he may use his time and responsibilities to fill up with good works for the good of his neighbors and the glory of God. Repent from sin and trust and follow Jesus. This is good news. We're we're preaching freedom from sin. But you have to know what sin you're enslaved to, right? If you don't know it, You can't be free from it. Freedom from sin is what we're preaching. We're preaching Jesus Christ who frees us from sin. Second lesson here is if you're not a... So speak boldly. Secondly, if you're not a Christian, listen attentively. Or I would say not only hear God's word, but heed God's word. I like that word. It's an old English word. It's not used much today. But heed has a combination of two things. Hearing and doing. It's, it, instead of saying hear and do, heed gets both of it in like one word. And so I, I, like, I like that combination type word. But heed God's word. Did, did Herod hear God's word or did he heed God's word? He heard it, right? He did not heed it. 
He heard it again and again and again, but he did not heed it. Herod loved to hear it, but he didn't, he didn't want to obey it. And so, do you know that Herod later wanted to kill Jesus? He was looking for Jesus to kill him. Herod finally gets to meet Jesus at the end of Jesus' life on earth. Jesus is on trial. Pilate has him chained up. And then he says, Herod's in town in Jerusalem. Go, go to Herod. He sends Jesus to Herod. And Herod is so happy. Finally, I get to meet the miracle worker. And so he, get, he gets to meet Jesus. And he's, he's hoping to see a miracle. And he's talking to Jesus, and you know, and he's asking Jesus questions. And the people are prosecuting Jesus. All those against Jesus are prosecuting him as he's there beaten and bloodied. And Jesus is there in chains. And you know what Jesus says as Herod's asking him questions and asking for a miracle? Jesus says nothing. He doesn't even look at him. Not one word from the God-man. You've heard enough. God has given you his word enough. You have hardened your heart. You have rejected the word of God. I have nothing to say to you. You have no authority over me. I'm in chains because I want to be in chains. This is my mission to be in chains. You have no authority over me. You you, you induce no fear in me. This is who you are. And I have nothing to say to you. That's the worst judgment you can get from God while you're still alive today. Is for God to not speak to you anymore. For God not to call you to repentance anymore. For God to not convict you of sin anymore. For God to not show you the glory of Jesus and the free offer of life anymore. That's judgment. And brothers and sisters, we have a word from God. We will speak it to our neighbors, to our friends, in our church gathering. Because we don't want people to fall under the judgment of God, do we? No. But if you are a hearer, you need to heed and not just hear. There are no second chances after death. Don't quickly write someone off because they tell you you're wrong. That's our natural instinct, right? When someone tells you you're wrong, we want to write them off and defend ourselves. Don't do that, especially if they're right. If they're right, shouldn't you listen? Shouldn't you, right? If someone's going to warn you about something that's true, if you're about to eat something and you find out, you know, there was this water recall. Uh, We have some of the water bottles here. Uh, Niagara water bottles. There's a recall because some of them have E. coli in it. Um, And so if you know that and you see someone drinking that, and you don't tell them? Is that love? What if you tell them and they get mad? Why are you telling me about E. coli? Get out of my business. I want to drink my water. I'm thirsty. Well, you could do that, but don't be mad when people are trying to love you and correct you. Just because they tell you you're wrong doesn't mean they're mad at you. And it doesn't mean they hate you. It actually could mean that they love you, especially if it's for your safety. Which when we preach sin and repentance, it is for your safety. It's for your eternal safety. So if you're not a Christian, I want to plead with you. Hear God's word. Hear the gospel and understand it. For the church, here's a message to us as a church family. If you're a churchgoer and regular attender, just because we sit here on Sundays and hear God's word all the time doesn't mean that we're necessarily obeying his will, right? Attendance is not Christianity by itself. Now, attendance is required by Christianity, right? It says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 to not forsake gathering together. So thank you for coming. We need to gather together. I need this. I need to see other Christian family here. I need your encouragement. And I need to encourage you. Or else I just won't grow spiritually. And yet, Christianity is not mere attendance and hearing. Christianity is trusting Jesus and turning from sin, which is doing the word. So that's the second lesson, is hear the word and obey it. Heed it. A third lesson here is draw near to God in suffering. Now, John the Baptist asked the question when he was in jail of Jesus. Now, imagine you're, you're John the Baptist and you know what you're preaching before you go to jail? 
The king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. And when the king comes, he's going to bring fire and judgment. And all of you either turn to him or face the wrath of the coming king. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. The king comes. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's the king. John keeps preaching. Jesus starts preaching a little bit. John goes in prison. And John's like, why am I in prison? He's like, oh, Jesus is going to bust me out here. He's going he's to do the kingdom thing, and I'm going to get busted out of here. Just, just wait, Herod and Herodias. Yeah, keep talking, Herod. Keep talking. He's coming. He's coming. I told you the king was coming. He's already here. And then John gets an act, a guy with an axe coming to his cell. And he's like, wait, I thought the kingdom was coming. Right? He, John even sent messengers while he was in prison, his disciples, to go to Jesus and say, are you the Messiah? Are you the king? Or are we supposed to be looking for someone else? I'm here in prison. What's the question he's asking that we're asking? Why does God allow suffering? God, why are you still allowing suffering? Can't you bust us out of this? Why would you want Christians to expect suffering? Don't you love us? Aren't you the king who rules? Is Jesus the Messiah? What does Jesus tell John, John's messengers? Tell them that, it says in Matthew 11, 4 and 5, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind walk, the blind see, I'm sorry, the blind see, the lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. I am the Messiah, and you're still in prison, and I'm not getting you out right now. But I am the Messiah, and you are going to suffer. Expect suffering. Expect suffering. Why should we expect suffering? Because Jesus said in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. So expect suffering. Draw near to God in suffering and expect suffering. Expect suffering. Jesus was, or John was loving Herod and Herodias and he got imprisoned. You know what you can do? You can get killed. You can get imprisoned. You can get fined. You can get fired. You can get mocked. You can be shamed by your coworkers. And yet the command still stands. Love your neighbor as yourself. Speak the truth in love. You have no options. You have to speak the truth in love to your neighbors. You don't have an option. God doesn't give us an option. He gives us a command. Because that's our command, we have to love them. And when we love them in this way, we will be persecuted by some. That's just how it is. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Now, can this happen in 2015? Isn't this way back in the day? There's no suffering today, is there, for Christians? Some might think. There's no persecution today. Well, 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When you, here's the mission of our church, and here's the mission of a Christian. To explain, enjoy, and embody Jesus. That's our mission. To explain, enjoy, and embody Jesus. That's what we do as a church. That's what we do as individuals, right? When you explain, enjoy, and embody Jesus to other people, you will have some who listen, and you will have some who oppose you. That's just how it is if you desire to live a godly life in Jesus. Do you know how ISIS got on the map in terms of popularity last year in July or June 2014? I have a shirt here that I wore on Wednesday and someone asked me about it and we explained it Wednesday night. Do you know what this symbol is? This is an N. 
So it says, I am N in the back. This is an N in Arabic. What ISIS did last year in June, when they took over Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq, they painted this sign on every house and business of a Christian. And they said, you have until July 19th, 2014, to leave here. Or recant and become Muslim, pay a fine, or die. And that was, tw- that was last year, last year and a month ago. And so they painted this everywhere. And so you couldn't hide. Everyone knew where you lived. It was on your house as, as ISIS was taking over that city. What are you going to do in that situation? You could, you could turn away from Jesus and recant, or you could stick to it, right? And you could die for Jesus. Expect what? Suffering. Expect suffering. What about today? You know, just, I think it was last week in World Magazine, they told a story about, um, I have to hurry up here, but the Kleins, they're in Oregon. They're bakers who baked wedding cakes. And they didn't bake, and they were, they were fined a hundred and, what does it say here in the report? I didn't write it here. It's either $135,000 or $185,000 for not baking a cake for a couple, uh, a same-sex couple. But they were regular customers. And so they say at the very end of it, here's what they say. Today's fine strips them of, here's what the report says. Today's fine strips them of their First Amendment rights, the couple wrote. But they are undaunted and clinging to their beliefs. Here's what they say. We are here to obey God, not man. And we will not conform to this world, they wrote. If we were to lose everything, it would be totally worth it for our Lord who gave his one and only son, Jesus, for us. Here's what we're saying. I'm not saying whether you fight for the First Amendment right or not. Yeah, we could use our democratic right. I'm not, I'm not speaking about political things here. I'm just saying, as a Christian, expect to suffer. It might not be your head getting cut off on a platter. It might not be someone painting on your house. But it might be just your neighbor. It might not even be this whole recent Supreme Court decision. It might just be you evangelizing your neighbor and they're saying, how dare you tell me Jesus is the only way? But we tell them anyways because we love them and we can't, we have no other option. Okay, and so where are we going to get the power to do this? I'm I'm done here. Where do we get the power to do this? It says in, um, this is my memory verses I've been memorizing later. 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7 says, therefore, Paul's writing to Timothy, therefore keep, Um, Keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. This gospel ministry that's given to you of of speaking the gospel, keep it ablaze. Keep it on fire in the darkness. And then he says in verse 7, here's why. He says, um, for God did not give us a spirit of fearfulness, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Where are we going to get the power to suffer in being bold in loving people even when they don't want to be loved? From the spirit of God. And why do we have the spirit of God? Because the Son of God died on the cross for our sins. In this story, we're Herod. In this story, we're Herod and Herodias. We're the ones who sinned and didn't want to obey God. And you know what we would do in our sinfulness? We would kill the Son of God. And John, I mean, I'm speaking metaphorically here. John is like Jesus here. He's the one who dies at the cost of our sin. Because of our sin, Jesus dies on the cross for our sin. And because he died and rose... He forgives us, he gives us freedom, and he gives us his Holy Spirit so that you can have the power to love people when they don't want you to love them and sacrifice your life for theirs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. We pray that we would share in being misunderstood and share in being mistreated and share in the power of the Holy Spirit purchased by the Son of God for our sins. We pray for our non-Christian friends that they would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus this morning. And we pray for us as Christians that we would heed your word, that we would expect suffering and lean on you.
Thank you that your Holy Spirit lives in us. And thank you that we're not alone. You are with us, and here we are with your people. And we're going to do this together. So help our church to do this together and partner with other churches to encourage them to do this together in gospelizing L.A. County and the world until we die or until Christ comes again. Help us to be faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.